Why is spontaneity important for liberalism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Scott Scheel. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Scott Scheel. Scott is Assistant Professor and Director of Graduate Studies in the Faculty of Social Science at Arizona State University's College of Integrative Sciences and Arts, as well as Project Director for the History of Economic Thought in Arizona State University's Center for the Study of Economic Liberty. He has published extensively on topics related to the history and philosophy of the Austrian School of Economics. He's also the co-host of Smith and Mark's Walk into a Bar, a History of Economics podcast. He has written a great essay called Spontaneity as a Concept of General Significance, The Austrian School on Money and Economic Order, and that will be the basis of our conversation today. Scott, welcome back to The Curious Task, actually. Uh, I'm I'm delighted to be here. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and Sabine, so I'm, I'm glad to be here. It's great to have you back on. And Scott, today our question is, why is spontaneity important for liberalism? And to explore this, it's probably best to start with defining what we mean by certain terms and con- concepts and, and go from there. So let, let's start with the basics before I hit you with a bunch of follow-ups. What do you mean just at the highest level by spontaneity? Well, so uh, spontaneous phenomena are simply undesigned phenomena. They are uh, unintended consequences. So that's kind of the the highest level definition I can give of spontaneity, but um, it's, I think, important to keep in mind certain distinctions about um, spontaneity that will inform our discussion about how it relates to liberalism. So, um, like I said, at the highest level, spontaneous phenomena are just unintended consequences, undesigned phenomena. Um, And I should be clear when I say undesigned, I mean, undesigned by a human agent or by by any other rational agent right so um so spontaneous phenomena encompass basically everything that is studied in the natural sciences uh there's no presumably no no supernatural designer there and even if there is a supernatural designer it's part and parcel of the sciences that we're going to ignore whatever role that supernatural designer might play in natural phenomena so all of all of the um, the phenomena of the natural sciences is spontaneous phenomena. Um, so we should distinguish right first between um, spontaneous phenomena generally um, and uh, particular instantiations of spontaneous phenomena. So um, there are so we so we might think of spontaneous phenomena. So any kind of accident, right? Anything that happens um, unintentionally um, is an example of spontaneous phenomena. Now, you, normally we think of accidents, right? We think of, uh, you know, one-off kind of, we run our car into the barrier when we don't mean to, or we slip and fall on some ice and break our necks or something horrible like that, right? Um, so th- so one-off accidents like that are examples of spontaneous phenomena. But um, perhaps more relevant to liberalism is this concept of a spontaneous order and a, a spontaneous order is a pattern of activity of of repeated or iterated activity that occurs without anybody designing or intending that pattern so the um, paradigmatic examples um adam smith's invisible hand of course is probably the most famous example um, but of course uh, Friedrich Hayek talked extensively about spontaneous orders. Um, Karl Menger, uh, the founder of the Austrian school, um, uh, uh, him together, uh, Menger together with Hayek, uh, probably the two most important um, in the modern era um, um, expositors of spontaneity and um, users of spontaneity in their in their social analyses. So uh, so right. So we have one off spontaneous events and then we have iterated patterns of phenomena that are not intended by any of the actors involved. And of course, that's a range, right? That's a spectrum of um, you can have more or less iterated spontaneous phenomena all the way from just one-off events to, you know, uh, things like markets and languages and, um, 
you know, governments themselves, which are which are often considered to be examples of undesigned, unintended phenomena. Mm -hmm. So um, I hope that I hope that explains it. No, yeah, that's a great high level jump in. I just want to actually go back to one thing you you mentioned, which is exactly true that, you know, most people think of like negative accidents when they think of like spontaneity, you know, something happens to them accidentally. And people usually think if they make a plan and go according to that plan, that's sort of a, a positive thing. But in the in the in the essay that uh, I reviewed before talking to you today, you also talk about that there are, you know, you can think of negative accidents and positive accidents as well. So I'm not sure if you just want to add a couple more ideas or examples idea of positive accidents, because I think you're absolutely correct in like sort of, you know, colloquial usage and just the way people talk to each other. If you say something's an accident or something just happened, it often comes with a negative connotation, but that's not always the case. Yeah, right. But I also think it works the opposite way, right? So I think that, um, you know, the concept of luck is is highly relevant here. Luck is an example of a spontaneous phenomena. So whenever we uh, we explain something that happens in our lives by, ah, I, I just got lucky or, or I just got unlucky, right? We're we're basically pointing to something that happened in our lives that was no part of our intention, that happened outside of our designs. Um, so luck and accident, um, that's part of what I'm trying to point out in this essay is that really we're, we're talking about the same kind of things and attaching a positive or a negative valence to uh, an accident or to luck is something that we kind of do, you know, ex post facto, we, in terms of whether we like it or not, right? We say, oh, that was, we got lucky or I got unlucky. Um, but it doesn't change ultimately the, the spontaneous, you know, origins of the phenomena, the fact that they emerge from things that are not um, intended by us. So, you know, to, to get at your question, I mean, I think that one, um, something that's relevant here is, and I talk about this in the essay, is why spontaneous phenomena is often ignored or neglected or or to the extent that it's discussed in the sciences and the humanities it's typically discussed uh, under different headings right we talk about accidents or we talk about luck or we talk about other term other kinds of concepts when really we're we're all just talking about spontaneous undesigned unintended phenomena um so the question is why why is that why um, particularly in the social sciences, why is the fact of spontaneous phenomena uh, so often neglected? Um, and and there's a lot of interesting history here, especially when you consider, you know, that the the founders of the social sciences, uh, you know, the, probably the two names in particular that I would point out, uh, David Hume and Adam Smith, um, were also. Uh, two of the most important philosophers of the spontaneous order tradition. Um, and so the question becomes, how did, how did the social sciences emerge from this spontaneous order tradition? And then over the course of the last 250 years, to some extent, get um, overwhelmed by other traditions that neglect or ignore or outright deny the existence of spontaneous phenomena. Now, I don't, I don't think we want to get too far into, into the weeds of the history of the social sciences, but, um, you know, part of what's at work there, I think, is, um, well, we can point to, you know, older theological conceptions of the world and of society, um, you know, of the world as being guided by some top-down manager um, that we would call of God or 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 a deity, um, and the effects of those theological conceptions on the subsequent history of 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 thought, right, and the subsequent history of the sciences and the social sciences. Um, to some extent, you know, Human Smith succeeded in replacing um, the conception of a of a God driven world with one of a human driven world. However, what became ignored or neglected or or underemphasized underemphasized in the subsequent 250 years is the fact that a lot of the phenomena that they were talking about although it was had a human element it was human caused it was not human designed right mm -hmm. so that's what spontaneous phenomena is is it's really um uh human caused phenomena or, or, or phenomena that's caused by some agent. The agent doesn't have to be human, but it's agent caused phenomenon that is not agent intended phenomena. Right. And, um, 
you know, to some extent, what's happened in the last 250 years is that we've replaced a conception of the world as controlled by God with a conception of the world as controlled by human beings. And you can imagine Smith and Hume, you know, in the background, waving their hands saying, no, that's not what we intended, right? We, we intended to point out that, um, that there, are, there is a range of phenomena that um, is created by human beings, but not intentionally created by human beings. And um, part of what I'm trying to emphasize in that essay is, is the need to recognize that that's really what we're doing in the social sciences. That's really what we're doing across all, I mean, all science. And I would argue also in the humanities is trying to come to a great, a better grip, a better grasp on um, what accidental spontaneous phenomena are and how they emerge and their consequences, right? And so uh, I, I'm kind of trying to bring out something that I think is latent in much of um, uh, much of science and, and the humanities. Um, and I, I would like to think that if we were more explicit about what we were doing in trying to come to grips with unintended phenomena, um, it may, well, I don't want to, I don't want to speculate too much, but it may make the liberal project um, more understandable to people who don't understand it, right? Um, and so uh, on one hand, I'm emphasizing the need for a general theory of spontaneity. On the other hand, I think that that has um, implications that are uh, relevant to those of us who um, favor classical liberalism. Right, right. And actually, we'll get, get into more of your ideas about how the, this idea of spontaneous order and spontaneity can apply to other areas of the social sciences and thinking in just a second. But but before we actually um, get into that, I kind of want to ask sort of a, a bit more of an in-depth question about like the, the nature of like, you know, human beings like acting in a way that ultimately results in a spontaneous order. And, and the question is going to sound like sort of like a hair split, but I'm doing it very specifically because especially for listeners that might be unfamiliar with the concept of spontaneous order, if they haven't explored that through economics or whatever, I think this is very key, which is that, you know, someone might say, well, you know, Scott, like obviously, you know, human beings are, you know, aren't just running around bumping into each other out there. Everyone thinks of a plan to, you know, go throughout their day or whatever else. But, but the point here is not that, every single human action has no set of planning behind it. The idea is that even in the most micro sort of cosmic sort of orbits, if you will, people's lives, they might lay out their own plans for the day or I want to go see so-and-so or I want to go buy, you know, I want to go buy whatever. But, you know, when you scale up, the idea is nobody's putting uh, intentionally any order to the overall design you see when you zoom out. I, you know, I just wanted to kind of get that point out there. You know, we're not saying that human beings are bumping into each other like particles or something. No, no, that's exactly right. I mean, but again, I think it's a matter of degree, right? Human beings are not like, uh, not like quarks. Um, we're not, we're not, you know, it's not nothing like Brownie in motion or anything like that. Um, we do have, have plans, but, um, part of what I'm emphasizing and, and part of what I hope people will, you know, walk away from listening to this podcast thinking is uh, about, how how little what happens in their lives is actually the result of of intentional planning right so i mean think about i mean an example i might give um is you know think about uh your significant other or think about you know a significant other that you've had in the past right you're the love of your life right um did you plan to meet that person did did you to what extent was meeting that person uh, the product of a you know predetermined plan as opposed to just being in the right place at the right time and having the right conversation mm. with the right person right so so I mean I think that's an example of 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 how much and you could also I mean you can sort of extend the example to think about your children right if if you have children right so think about um, what determines whether one sperm rather than another meets the egg. Right. It's not your intentions, right? So, I mean, um, if you think about, I, I think about these kinds of things, you think about, well, if my parents had, you know, decided to have sex one night before right. or one night after they actually One hour did, before. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, it would be <laughs> one very minute. different. Yeah. So, I mean, these are all examples of the kind of phenomena that I'm talking about. I mean, I really do think that our, our lives, when we start to think about it, our personal lives, when we when we really start to think about it, are, are are determined more by spontaneity than they are by planning. I mean, we we're constant we're 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 constantly planning 
and those plans are are constantly going awry. Um, another example I might give that um, I've talked about somewhere, um, and this is more of a higher level kind of state government kind of example. But so think about what is quite possibly the most planned down to the second government program in history, the Apollo missions, right? Think about, think about everything that went into constructing the Apollo 11, you know, the rockets, designing the, the planning out the, the, the path from Cape Canaveral to the Sea of Tranquility. Think about all of that. But also th- realize for a moment that that plan in the last moment very nearly failed. Mm. Neil Armstrong overshot the original landing site. Right. And, and they were very close to plowing into the moon, right? I mean, right. Aldrin and Armstrong could have ended up like just two flies on a windshield um, were it not for the fact that Neil Armstrong's psychology and his experience was such that he was able to steady the craft and land it not in the Sea of Tranquility, where it was supposed to land far beyond the Sea of Tranquility, but he was able to stabilize the craft. So in other words, the most down-to-the-minute, down-to-the-second planned government program in the history of the world ultimately hinged on spontaneous considerations, on how Armstrong's individual psychology engaged with stimuli in such a way that he somehow managed to land that craft safely. I think that, I mean, I think that's a, that's a good example of the role that spontaneity plays in everything, right? Even this most precisely planned government program ultimately hinged, the success of it ultimately hinged on one man's psychology and his ability to deal with, you know, chaotic stimuli. Right. And that's a really good point, too, in a way, because there's another angle looking at it as well. Like, of course, you know, human beings participated in trying to achieve this goal, but ultimately they were dealing with like, you know, just like, like, what do you call it? In a, like physical matter, like they're trying to overcome physics, which are not conscious beings, for example, other than the human element that you said at the last minute there. But like, you know, but if you turn, you know, our attention or idea and our focus to like a government program that's trying to do something like, quote, regulate an economy or something like that, where it's not just, you know, you're trying to figure out escape velocity and so on and so forth and worry about the, the way gravity's working, you're actually worried about thousands, if not millions of people trying to do their own things and having their own subjective value and so on. So obviously we'll, we'll get into more of that kind of thing and the implications as we go along. But, but it's interesting to note that you said even the most, you know, amount of planning that went into a certain goal could have went awry or was then, you know, just ticked a little bit over on the trajectory by a human element. It's like what they were trying to overcome wasn't even, for example, uh, or, or regulate in this case, I should say, wasn't even other people or other uh, ideas and so on. It was just matter at that point. So that's kind of interesting, too, that it, things get a lot more complicated when you involve other factors like other human beings as well. Yes. I mean, that's just that's just one example. Right. So, I mean, think of uh, think of, you know, every government program as an Apollo mission that has to deal with, uh, you know, um, millions of Neil Armstrong's. Right. 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 Not not all of whom are going to have Armstrong's uh, skills and abilities in the moment. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and, um, and and another thing I sort of said before was that, like, you know, and, and you kind of dug into it, which I'm happy you did, which is that, um, you know, the idea that I did say, well, people do have individual plans sort of in, in the micro, but I guess you're right. I mean, like, most of those aren't, if we really get into the nature of this, most of those aren't, like, sort of grandmaster plans. Like, I don't sketch out a blueprint to go to the store. I really have sort of intentions and an idea of what I want to do. No one's actually planning that. So it's kind of interesting. I think it's important to, to make that distinction there because really well that taps into my next question is not necessarily what people want to do but how other things affect those people's decisions and i have a quote from you here from your essay and it says it should go without saying that ignorance not omniscience or and omnipotence is is the normal state of human affairs whether we acknowledge it or not to realize desired to realize desired and unavoid and avoid undesired states of affairs we are constantly made to rely on spontaneous forces that play no part in our intentional planning. And I think that's very interesting too, because now we're sort of stepping away from talking about, as I said, what people intend to do and actually how you can intend to do as much as you want, but there's all these other factors too, even at, even in the smallest level, forget about an Apollo mission, even on your way to the store or whatever else. So I guess we have to consider 
intentions of one actor, but also all the other factors that can affect that too. And that's how we live our lives every day. That's right. I think that I think um, another example that might be pertinent here is um, the old saying, um, I'm not a I'm, I have no background in the military. I know, I know very little about um, military strategy or, or tactics, but I know that there is a saying that goes something like um, every every military plan uh, is only so good uh, up to that moment where it meets the enemy. Right. right. And 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 I think that's uh, I think that 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 quote might even be due to Clausewitz, who is the famous military strategist in history. Um, but the idea is basically right. You know, I mean, you can you can plan um, a battle. You can you can lay out your your formations. You can lay out who, which regiment's going to be here, which regiment's going to be there. But that plan is only as good as um, as the enemy sort of allowing you to implement it. Right. Mm-hmm. As soon as the as soon as the enemy comes back at you with new circumstances, the plan's thrown out the yeah. window and you just have to adapt. Right. And so so much. I mean, a lot of what I'm talking about here is adapting to new circumstances that don't figure in your plan. Right. So go back to the example that you just gave. Um, think about um, I mean, I'll tell you that after we end this interview, I have some I have some plans for the afternoon. I'm going to go to the gym and then I'm going to go to the store. I'm going to run some errands. Right. Well, think about everything that can happen that can throw those plans into disarray, right? Maybe I get to the gym and something has happened. It's closed today. You know, something completely did not enter into my planning at all. So I can't go to the gym today. I have to, I have to improvise. I have to adapt to new circumstances, right? Or, you know, God forbid I go to the store and I get into an accident before then, or, you know, to take a a slightly different example, um, You've probably had an experience like this where um, what you buy at the store depends so much on your kind of state of mind at the moment, right? So you go to the store with a shopping list and you attend to get just those things that are on the shopping list. And then all of a sudden you get there and you're distracted by this display of new pastries or whatever it might be, right? Something, something right. new, something takes you away. I mean, you know, um, those of us who have had the experience of going to a store after smoking marijuana know exactly how this works, <laughs> right? You, you go with a plan right. and you end up throwing that plan out the window and buying one of everything. Um, and so that, that is in a way um, just an example of, uh, of spontaneous phenomena. Absolutely. And and before I move on to like the, the use case of, of money, which I ultimately want to get to because your essay does a great exploration of how just money in and of itself, there's a lot of to discuss about spontaneity, spontaneous order, how to merge and so on and so forth. But before we sort of d- dive into that, I kind of want to cap off our general exploration of the nature of uh, spontaneity and spontaneous order with really sort of something tying back to something you, you brought up earlier as well, which is that, again, a lot of people, especially from the economics perspective, economists themselves um, and as well as people interested in economics might understand this from like that point of view. But but your your general thought is that there's a lot to be understood, discussed, further explored, and a lot to take seriously when it comes to the nature of spontaneity and spontaneous order, not just for economics, but also across the social sciences. I was wondering before we get into the use case specifically, if you, you could get a, a, a bit more into that, because you, you were talking about that you, clearly you think there's like um, this sort of type of discussion is lacking in other areas of the social sciences. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's part of the purpose of the essay is hopefully to get people to see um, and I should mention, maybe this is an opportunity to mention what the, the essay is. It's part of a, a broader project. Um, it is a contribution to a, a, an encyclopedia or a handbook on um, the philosophy of money. And um, the person who is editing the handbook is a philosopher at the University of South Dakota by the name of uh, uh, Joseph Tingley. Um, and um, it's an incredible project. It's really, it's this huge two volume project. He's got this big grant from the U S national endowment for the humanities. And he's got like 50 different authors, each of whom is writing on um, a, a, either a particular historical period or a particular philosopher or a particular school of philosophy or a particular school of economics. And, and what these different individuals and schools think about um, money. And so my contribution is really intended to be the, um, the contribution to the handbook um, covering the Austrian school of economics. So, um, so 
you know, part of the reason that I wrote this was knowing that it would be read by philosophers, that it would be read beyond um, the narrow confines of Austrian economics and economics more broadly. So, yes, I am trying to have a conversation with people in other disciplines, in uh, in philosophy, in history, in um, sociology, and just all across the social sciences. And, um, you know, I, I give a brief example in the essay of um, a kind of uh, phenomenon that I think would, would – um, would be well served by an analysis in terms of spontaneity or spontaneous order. And this gets back to your earlier point about negative and positive spontaneous orders. Um, I tend to think that, you know, if there is this thing called systematic or, or structural racism, um, you know, whether it's systematic or structural sexism, right? It could be any other kind of, we're talking about um, outcomes, mm-hmm. disparities that emerge without being intended by any of uh, the actual individuals involved in the emergence of the phenomena. Um, and when we talk about systematic or structural racism, I mean, part of what is so, I think, confusing um, to people across the the political spectrum is that we're talking about outcomes that emerge despite, you know, sort of racist disparities that emerge despite none of the individuals actually being, you know, holding race racist attitudes or, or, or making, you know, conscious decisions Mm -hmm. to favor this group over that group. And so um, to the extent that systematic racism is a real phenomenon, I I think that it is a a real phenomenon um, that would conduce to a, an analysis in terms of how, you know, well-intended or at least maybe I don't know, well-intended, but not racist. Right. You know, uh, people without racist intentions can nonetheless, through their um, engagement with certain institutions, with certain rules in society, with certain customs and traditions, um, contribute to these kinds of disparities that are no parts of their intention. Right. So. um, So, I mean, that's an example of like a sociological phenomenon that I think would would um, uh, would benefit from an analysis in terms of. spontaneous order yeah no i think that's actually a very good example because i think a lot of these these times in these conversations you know when you hear people talk about like you know institutional racism or like just like overall you know structure inequalities created by just like the structure and the way something functions or you know class analysis or whatever else you know sometimes people will counter basically say well you know i highly doubt if we just as an example we surveyed like you know this police department that 90 percent would say that they're overtly racist or whatever so and then you often hear people kind of go off and talk on a you know a tangent about a bunch of other things but but i think this is actually a great example because you're right it, it seems to me now that i think about it and now that you just said that it clicked with me that one of the tools sort of lacking in the toolbox in many of these conversations is simply just to stop and say the point like you know like regardless of intentions you know maybe people can if you will be led by some sort of invisible hand to know you know fault of their own to actually create certain outcomes you know it's possible for a system to result in like you know some sort of like ongoing sort of um outcomes that are sort of all you know create inequalities between like how people are treated in the court system for example things like that so i think that, right. that's an excellent point right the, the way these discussions typically go is i mean you just described it right is that is that one side says look at this look at this outcome look at this disparity you take the police for example right um and then the other side says well we don't mean that right we don't we don't intend that and then the conversation just ends and it's what I'm pointing out is that there's no real inconsistency there, right? I mean, once you recognize the role that spontaneous phenomena play, it's entirely possible that no one can be intending these outcomes, but yet they emerge anyways because of the way that our actions, you know, engage with certain institutions, with certain traditions, et cetera. So, um, so yeah, exactly right. Yeah, so then that's, and that's kind of like what I got in the gist of your essay too, right? Is that like beyond 
like um you know the idea of like you know economists will often talk about like price and exchange and the, and the overall like equal like at least approaching equilibrium that's sort of that spontaneous sort of discussion but as you said like this can be this type of discussion understanding of spontaneity as you said in your essay it's not just about the philosophy of money it could be applied just in general when we look at the world or i.e philosophy in general could benefit from the discussion so we're talking really about not only economic outcomes but even cultural traditions social institutions all that kind of stuff i think there's a lot of great room in the conversation for spontaneity as well um before we actually jump into that money conversation, which I did want to do as the use case, we actually are about the time to take a break. So it's a good time to, to do that in anyway. So we're going to do that. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Scott Shield today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Alessandro Fiorello, Ben Hobbs, and Amy Willis. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Scott Shield today. So, Scott, I think the first half was great. We discussed the nature of spontaneity, and that took us uh, in a lot of great directions. You sort of made the distinction between spontaneous events, spontaneous order. We talked about the applicability of of this, the, all these ideas in this great discussion beyond just the the uh, the realm of economics, if you will, or that kind of point of view. I did want to talk to you about how ultimately. You know, we're not going to go through every word or every paragraph of, of your essay, but obviously you did think that money itself is a great way to to study and apply the case for spontaneity and look and look at you know sort of the nature of money and how how spontaneous, spontaneous order and spontaneity affects that. So I, I just kind of wanted to take some time and explore that as sort of our use case for today to apply all the things we've been talking about. So let's start with just wh- why do you think money in general is 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 a good thing to look at when it comes to these concepts? I, I suppose perhaps the story and you correct me if I'm wrong would start with just how money itself emerged forgetting about how it's used later. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and I mean, um, I'll, I'll I'll give you a little bit of background in terms of how I settled on writing the essay, um, in the way that I did. So, you know, I was given this charge to write, um, the Austrian school entry, uh, to this handbook on the philosophy of money. So that it got me thinking, you know, uh, what is the Austrian school's contribution to the philosophy of money? I took a step back and thought, well, you know, we're talking about a school of economics, right? Not a school of philosophy. So maybe I should start with the question, what is the Austrian school's contribution to philosophy generally, right? Mm. Um, and it turned out to be basically the same answer, right? So the, um, the, I would argue, and I argue in the essay, that the Austrian contribution to philosophy generally is basically picking up the baton from the Scottish Enlightenment philosophers and continuing to expand and emphasize the analysis of spontaneity and the spontaneous order tradition, right? Um, And so once I had kind of figured that out, it became really easy to write the money part because both the Scottish Enlightenment philosophers, we're talking primarily Smith and Hume, um, and the Austrian economists, I focus on Mises and uh, Menger and Hayek. Um, one thing that they had in common, in addition to being very interested in spontaneity and in developing the spontaneous order tradition, the invisible hand tradition, um, was their interest in money. So it was it was very easy to see that you know all of these guys were using uh, money both as an example of a spontaneous phenomena and illustrating the operations of spontaneous phenomena using money as an example. So, um, so that's kind of how I kind of came to this, you know, um, idea. Um, I, I suppose I, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question whether I could have written a similar essay using an example other than money. Um, it's kind of hard to imagine actually, now that I think about it because money seems to be, about the best example, um, both into, so, I mean, when we talk about money, we're talking first of all about its emergence as an institution, right? How mm-hmm. did we move from a world where money didn't exist, a world in which, um, it, to the extent that exchange occurred, it was, a you know, a barter sort of, um, um, 
phenomena. Um, how do we move from that to a world of indirect exchange where there is an intermediary, there is the, the, the money that, that greases the wheels of exchange? Um, how, did, how did money, fin- money um, emerge? How did it first make, make its appearance in history? But then there's also um, you know, issues with regard to what determines the value of money at any given time, right? Is that determined spontaneously or through some kind of you know, top-down programming? Um, and then there's also the role that money plays in the development of other economic phenomena, for example, like the business cycle. And um, you know, in looking at the Scottish Enlightenment philosophers and the Austrian economists, it was interesting to notice that they're often talking about you know, different things, only you know, maybe 100 or 150 years apart. Um, they were talking about the same kinds of things, using spontaneity as, uh, as the tool of explanation. Um, and you know, there's a pretty clear historical line that one can draw from uh, Hume and Smith to Hayek, um, kind of through Menger. Um, Menger himself didn't seem to be very, I mean, he knew Hume and Smith, of course, but he seemed to be a little bit more influenced by some people in the German historicist tradition of jurisprudence like uh, Savigny. Um, anyways, so there's this there's this historical arc that kind of begins with the Scottish Enlightenment philosophers and then, as I referenced earlier, kind of gets absorbed by other traditions um, in the 1800s. And then it's really Manger in the in uh, the 1870s, the late 1800s, who really emphasizes spontaneity and kind of begins to use it again as a tool of his of his economic analysis. So um I feel like I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, no, no. You're, you're just, you're, that's actually good. You were just touring sort of, you're trying to say, I was talking about, you know, money as a use case in general. You sort of wanted to take a step back and get into like how this sort of through line of, of where these thinkers eventually, you know, get to, which is through Menger's work. And of course, Hayek later, uh, the, the idea right. of money in spontaneous order. Right. So I, I will say that, um, you know, uh, Adam Smith and Carl Menger offer very similar explanations for the emergence of money. Um, from barter, um, so that was a kind of a natural thing to to discuss. Um, they're they're very similar conceptions of of um, the spontaneous emergence of money through the interaction of individuals pursuing their own interests without the goal of actually creating you know mm-hmm. um, indirect exchange, um, and uh, that also so that kind of led to um, thinking about um, Ludwig von Mises's what's called the regression theorem, which is um, uh, the question is, you know, what determines the value, the purchasing power of money today? And uh, Mises, building on Menger, argues basically that, you know, today's purchasing power is based on yesterday's purchasing power, and yesterday's bur- purchasing power is based on the purchasing power from the day before. And so working his way backwards, uh, Mises arrives at the conclusion that Ultimately, a sort of on day one, when uh, when when um, the commodity went from just being a commodity to being a commodity also used as money, um, that purchasing power on day one was determined by whatever purchasing whatever the commodity's value was on the prior day, right? So that's the regression theorem: is that if you if you're trying to determine what the value of today's money is, you've got to work back to when it wasn't a money, to when it was just a commodity. And that helps you to understand that whatever today's purchasing power is, is a reflection of two things, right? It's a reflection of that original commodity value. And it's a reflection of all of the spontaneous things that have happened in between, right? Because of course, no one intended for today's purchasing to be to today's purchasing power to be such as it is, right? That is right. something that has emerged through the combination of the original value of the commodity and the intervening exchanges that it's been put to as a money, right? Um, and then that led to a discussion of um, the role that spontaneity plays in the Austrian business cycle theory. I'm leaving a lot of stuff out here, of course, but um, these are kind of the major themes that I talk about in the paper. And, uh, you know, I argue that the, that the Austrian business cycle theory is really, it's, uh, it's a two-sided story about spontaneity. On one hand, it's a story of how um, a market economy 
with an inelastic currency, meaning an, a, a currency that the supply of which cannot be, you know, raised or lowered at will by um, some authority. Um, it's a story about how, in that sort of a context, spontaneous forces operate to um, create and maintain something approximating economic equilibrium. Of course, the Austrians are a little bit skeptical of economic equilibrium, so they don't believe that we ever perfectly achieve equilibrium, but we're, but in a world where, you know, um, no one's manipulating the economy too much, um, we dance around kind of an equilibrium point. Um, so that's part of the spontaneous story. You might call that a positive spontaneous story about how, um, you know, good results can emerge from certain institutional um, arrangements. But then there's a negative side of the story. A negative spontaneous order can emerge when in a different context, in an elastic currency regime where the money supply can be raised and lowered sort of at will, um, it's a story about how negative consequences, a negative order follows from that kind of an institutional setup. Um, Right. So that's kind of how I use um, money to both illustrate the operations, or I don't use, I should say, the, the Scottish Enlightenment philosophers and the Austrian economists right. used money to illustrate how spontaneity works. And then also, um, you know, explained money using spontaneity. So, yeah. Right. No, that's a great overview. And, and only because of the constraints of time, I'm gonna have to make some decisions on, I want to drill into a couple more things there, but I have to make some decisions on exactly what it is. We're probably going to leave a bit of that Austrian business cycle theory to the side. Maybe we'll catch back up with we have some time. But but I did want to kind of, as far as like uh, picking up on one of the things you, you dropped there in your overview, which is sort of the, the emergence of money itself, as you said, that sort of discussion sort of covered in the essay, or at least touched upon. But so just as to like, sort of, you know, in, in a good way, sort of dwell on that point, I think it, it cannot be sort of overstated how, you know, a bunch of people did not get together one day and basically said, all right, you know, we're just going to all start accepting and trading gold. I mean, yes, as part of history, you know, different uh, kingdoms, empires, whatever might have, you know, recognized a certain specific currency or stamp or whatever. But putting that aside, like, you know, the fact that gold emerged as a medium of exchange in many societies, that in and of itself is a great example, I think, a spontaneous order, right? And I guess that's just, you know, again, how an order that emerges through various, you know, small micro interactions and so on and so forth, right? There are all kinds of interesting historical and um, philosophical questions that are raised by um, the sort of Smith-Manger story of the emergence of money. So um, one, of course, concerns its historical adequacy as an as a explanation for the first appearance of money. Um, there are a couple of things to say about this. I, I mean, I'll, you know, people have written um, against the Manger theory um, as recently as the last 10 or 15 years or so. And the idea is that, you know, if you look through the historical records that we have available to to us, we just don't, we, it's, we, it's difficult to see the spontaneous emergence of money. What we do see is a lot of governments <laughs> dictating that uh, so-and-so is to be used as the, as the medium of exchange. Um, one thing to say about that is that Menger is explicit that that's exactly what you're going to find, right? You're not mm. going to find, he says, look, if you look at history, we see all of these instances of governments saying, we're going to use this, we're going to use, you know, cowrie shells, we're going to use, um, you know, uh, hides, we're going to use gold or silver or whatever is money. Right. Um, that's to be expected. And he says, that's not what I'm talking about, right? I'm talking about what would lead anyone to have that idea in the first place? What would lead anyone to have that idea of creating that policy, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And so and, and to you, value the, these commodities or sub or whatever is being traded, that's right. To value that's themselves. right. Yeah. That's right. So he says, you know, I, I admit that if you look back in history, you're not going to find, um, you know, records of of one individual starts using, uh, you know, shells to, you know, mediate their exchanges with some other individuals. What you're going to find is, you know, written records of governments doing certain things that that's not what I'm talking about. But there's also, you know, sort of a philosophical issue um, in that imagine for a moment that as a historical matter, money did emerge in a top down sort of way from the government to the people. Right. There's a sense of which what Manger is saying is that's irrelevant. What is the simplest explanation for the appearance of money? And the simplest explanation is 
people pursue their own interests and money emerges as a side effect, right? The simplest explanation is not that some king uh, just came up with the idea one day of money, right? That's, that doesn't explain anything. That doesn't that doesn't that doesn't actually account for anything, right? Uh, King Midas decided let's we're going to use money. Well, how did he decide that? That's you st- you still have something left to explain, right? And so um, there are all kinds of uh, interesting historical and philosophical issues that are raised by that Smith Manger account of money, and and probably probably the historical question will to some extent always remain unresolved, but the philosophical question, the philosophical you know. Um, explanation that Mayer gives that this is the simplest simplest account for the appearance of money is, I think, um, uh, a powerful um, you know justification for his theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And of course, like there's also the the discussion about like you know where where do you find legitimate historical records? In many cases, that's from certain institutions and governments themselves, and the, sure. the reigns. So I mean, like th- those are the people that are going to be recording that history. They're not saying, and then you know, therefore that that peasant you know village off to the side, you know, you know. Uh, by the way, they were the first. Like you're not going to find that in the historical record either, right? Of, of course not. And 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 but another thing that's interesting about Manger's account is that it explains. Um, so we we know. Um, that at different times and different places, different commodities have served the purpose of money. We also know that over time, um, the metals ultimately emerged almost interna- you know, universally, internationally as, mm. as, as money everywhere, right? So Manger's account can explain that. It can explain how some societies went from cowrie shells and hides to eventually gold and silver. It doesn't, it doesn't only explain the initial appearance of of indirect exchange. It also explains how we eventually settled on particular um, commodities as as monies. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of you know um, you know and and of course again like I, I always say that like you know of course a lot of people used to the economic side of things will talk about money prices et cetera as an example. But sort of pivoting away from that into like the the broader lens now that we've explored that use case and getting a bit. Also back to towards the top of the theme you and I discussed at the beginning, which is how all this sort of relates to, you know, ultimately human beings doing what they want voluntarily with each other, which is the sort of the idea of the liberal project, as you sort of termed it before. Um, You know, do do you feel that, especially tying it with your idea that, you know, there's more room to think about this in the social sciences as well beyond economics, does it it simply need to be accepted that to live in a free society, you know, we're going to have most, if not all, of the the larger order, you know, ultimately driven by spontaneous events and therefore spontaneous order. I mean, like it sounds obvious to people like you and I, but I mean, this is really the case that needs to be made, or at least some of the discussions that need, you know, to get more attention from some other folks, you know, so whether it be the city planner type audience, uh, you know, that there's a discussion there to be had, or people that actually still, you know, dream whatever people are left in this category of literally running an economy from top down command across an entire country. I mean, this is really the idea. I mean, when you connect it back up to the, to the liberal project, you know, the idea of command and not having spontaneous order certainly illiberal. So I guess anyone who, I don't want to make overstate the case, but anybody who actually does value liberalism, if they don't also explicitly value spontaneous order, I guess one of your arguments would be they, they need to get on that wagon at some point, right? There's a lot to address there, Alex. So let me start with... Um, Again, maybe from a kind of broad perspective, and then we'll kind of dig into the specifics. So I, I tend to think um, one way to think about liberalism is it's ultimately an epistemology. Liberalism is a theory of knowledge. It's a theory of learning. And as a theory of knowledge, it basically says, look, in order to learn, we uh, have to um, be able to pursue our own interests. We have to be able. We have to be able to make mistakes, right? We have to. We have to um, engage with the world and learn from the world mm-hmm. and learn by by engaging with the world and learning from the world. I I mean other people, right? So this is ultimately the Mill point. This is ultimately John Stuart Mill's point about liberalism. We need to we need to learn from other people what works and what doesn't work. So thinking about liberalism as an epistemology, I think um, you could argue that all of the politics of liberalism follows from that, hmm. right? It follows from the idea that 
liberalism is ultimately a theory of how we learn and how we know and how we live successfully in the world. And all of the political stuff about needing freedom and, and all of that follows from that, right? Um, so a lot of the success of that kind of a project, by which I mean convincing people of it, um, requires showing people their ignorance, right? It requires convincing people that they may not know everything that they need to know in order to live successfully, that they may not know everything they need to know to control other people's lives in such a way that those other people live successfully, right? Um, so, I, you know, a lot of it comes back to hubris and humility. Um, if people are prepared to admit that they don't know everything, that they are uh, by and large ignorant of much of what they need to know to succeed in life, then I think the the liberal project kind of follows from that. Um, but you know, we live in a world where um, where uh, misplaced certainty seems to be rewarded and humility seems to be. Um, you know, denigrated. Um, you try going on Twitter and saying, I don't know about anything, right? Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that, I think that um, there are very deep connections here between the success of liberalism as a political philosophy and individual attitudes about um, ourselves as knowers and as uh, epistemic subjects, as, as beings in the world. Um, so there's that. But there's also the fact that I think that that there's a message that is relevant to existing liberals, right? People that are already inclined to to liberalism. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's two questions to, to to consider here. So there's there's the question of how um, what role spontaneity has to play in a in an existing liberal order. Okay. Um, and then there's also the question of how, what role, if any, spontaneity has to play in producing a liberal order, producing a more liberal order than the one that we currently live in, right? So within a liberal order, actually within any kind of political system, um, it is always spontaneity, if anything, that makes possible beneficial social outcomes that extend beyond our knowledge, that are not intended by any of the individual actors within the system. And this is just, this is Smith's invisible hand point. This is, this is Mandeville's, um, you know, uh, private vices and public benefits, that not everybody has to be well-intentioned for good things to happen, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a role that spontaneity has to play within an, a liberal order, like I said, within really kind of any kind of order. Um, but then there's also the question of how we realize a liberal order, starting from starting from the world in which we live in, which I, I don't think any classical liberal um, considers, you know, the ideal order, the ideal system. Um, how do we, how do we get closer to that? Right. Um, and the question, the answer is, is that really we could do it through government action, right? We could, we could deregulate, we could shrink the size of government through deliberate kind of decision-making in a top-down kind of way, or it could emerge spont spontaneously. It could be, or or anywhere in between, right? I mean, the, again, it's it's uh, it's always a spectrum between deliberate action and spontaneous uh, consequences. There's always a a spectrum of how much you're actually involved, how much planning is involved, how much intent is involved in any particular outcome. Well, when it comes to realizing a more liberal order, we can also we can either um, expect policymakers to do it, or we can try to manifest that kind of an order through spontaneous means, right? Through a bottom-up kind of process. Mm -hmm. So um, I think this is something that liberals don't really think very carefully about. I mean, when we when we advocate for liberalism, when we advocate for, for um, a, a more liberal order, what exactly does that mean? And how much are we relying on it to be a top-down sort of thing that a that proceeds through deliberate deregulation or removal mm -hmm. of different restrictions, and how much does it proceed through um, spontaneous evolution, changes in attitudes, changes in you know institutional forms that emerge more from a bottom up than from a, a top down kind of um, um, arrangement? Um, so, 
Yeah, there's a lot. There's spontaneity is involved everywhere, and that's part of what I'm I'm trying to drive at is that is that really whether you're uh, whether you're a devout classical liberal or or a devout um, planner, um, you have to recognize the fact that some things are outside of your control. Some things extend beyond your knowledge, and that's where spontaneity uh, comes into play. And if you want to realize your goals, whatever they might be, you better understand the role that spontaneity is playing in the mm-hmm. development of, or the actual emergence of those goals, the realization of those goals than, you know, than we currently do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that that's a, that's a really good point, especially when, you know, we talk about the idea of, of affecting change and how one goes about it. And I'm, I'm certainly not uh, putting down, you know, for example, uh, the whole, you know, uh, think tank podcast, write a paper, let's share it type of routine, because I'm literally participating, you know, in that right now with you, which I think is great. But, you know, it's it sort of what comes to my mind, though, is that, you know, sometimes I find um, in certain circles, at least that, you know, um, you know, for example, things like direct community action in some classical liberal circles are not as sometimes either valued or prioritized uh, as as sort of the standard routines of like, you know, doing the podcast, doing the papers, hanging out with certain academics at conferences or whatever. And, you know, we can talk about trying to affect a certain legislation or a certain group of politicians with, you know, whatever it is making, for instance, the lives of homeless people better or something like that. But there's also something to be said for, you know, for as one example, you know, direct community action and doing something from the bottom up too, right? So I think in my personal bias and point of view, I'm taking sort of what you said and crafting my own conclusion onto that. But I think that's that's one example, for at least from no, my that's, point of view. No, that's totally right. I, I completely agree. I think sometimes as, as classical liberals, we have a tendency to, um, well, I think this is true of all, all, you know, philosophies. It's not, it's not unique to classical liberals, but we have a tendency to not, you know, think of direct community action. We, we think of direct community action as being a, oh, that's too, that's too Marxist for our taste taste. That's too, that's too collectivist for our taste, but maybe there's something to it, right? Maybe mm-hmm. there's something that we can learn from, from, uh, that we can borrow from other philosophies that is useful to our, um, our own, um, you know, political desires and wishes and projects. You know, I, mean, I think the one way to think about it is that, you know, as a philosopher, as an economist, we have existing theories of constitutions, right? So, I mean, uh, we have James Buchanan's wonderful work. We have theories of the constitutional elements necessary for the emergence of an effective liberal order, but we don't have much grasp on the role that spontaneity uh, might or must play in the eventual emergence of such an order. So, so I'm not discouraging that kind of, you know, constitutional analysis by no means. I'm, mm. I'm, I do, I do some of that work, right. But I'm trying to make us trying to remind us that there's this other element that like, go back to go back to the military planning, right. That our, our constitutional plans are only so good as they are when up to the moment when they meet society, right. Cause at that point they become out of our, out of our control. And if we want our plans to actually succeed, or if we want certain kinds of politics to emerge, we can't just focus on the deliberate planning stuff. We have to think about, theorize how factors outside of our control might intervene to either promote or hinder our plans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and un- unfortunately, because I think we can go on this for, for much longer as well, we are sort of heading to the, the last part of our time here. So what I'm going to do um, instead of continuing on for many hours with you on this one, because I think this topic's great, of course, is I am going to move us to our formal wrap up. So, uh, I, and as you know, Scott, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has last word to add their final thoughts and bring the conversation full circle and so on and so forth. So let, let me throw you the official last question in each of our episodes, which is, so we've talked about a lot, but what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on spontaneity itself and spontaneous order, of course, and, and why it's important for liberalism? In other words, if you wanted someone listening to all of this to take away one, two, or just a few things, what would those ultimately be? I think I would, I would hope, like I said earlier, I hope that people leave this conversation thinking about the extent to which and ways in which both our own personal lives and our societies are um, affected by unintended phenomena, by spontaneous phenomena outside of our control. And the consequent need, if we are to understand ourselves and our societies, 
for further inquiry into the nature and consequences of spontaneity. So that's that's what I would want uh, people to 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 leave this conversation with. I hope that um, I hope that uh, you think about throughout the remainder of the day the various ways in which things outside of your control are determining what happens to you, and also I hope that that leads you to think about the ways outside of anyone's control determine uh, the ways that phenomena outside of anyone's control determine what happens in society. Right. So, um, so yeah, just start thinking about what a small and limited person you are in this universe. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good place to start for sure. I guess we'll leave it there. Scott Shield, thank you very much for joining me again on the curious task. It's been a pleasure, Alex. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.